Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books and in Indian Religions podcast here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More about me at rajbalkaran.com. More importantly, today I get to speak with Dr. Gregory M. Kleins, Assistant Professor uh, at the Department of Religion at Trinity University. Uh, we'll be speaking about a fascinating um, new 2022 Rutledge publication, Jane Ramayana Narratives, Moral Vision and Literary Innovation. Uh, Gregory, welcome to the podcast. So thank you so much, Raj. Long-time listener. Uh, very glad to be here. Wow. Well, we have a long-time listener, so you know exactly what you're getting into. I'm going to critique the hell out of your work. <laughs> yep. uh, so as to... Um, no, no, no. Uh, so you're well aware that um, we are just prompting some general takeaways for a, for a larger uh, public audience. Mm-hmm. And this is a topic, I mean, frankly, I've the vast majority of these works, if not all of them, I find fascinating for a variety of reasons. But rumor has it, I've studied the Ramayana before. It was the topic <laughs> of my my, um, my master's work at the University of Toronto. Mm. And over the course of the master's, I did it half time. I was working, at, but I was working at three, like maybe I was working half time and I was mastersing half time. Sure. And uh, I had a, a trip to India in 2008, I believe, with... Um, 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 the International uh, um, Summer School for Jane Studies. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. And ended up discovering uh, that uh, Jane Ramayanas are fairly different. <laughs> from, oh, yeah. There's a great deal of difference. Absolutely, it, it, yeah. Far from monolithic or, or Ramayana traditions, mm-hmm. but there are some fascinating innovations that, that we yeah. see in Jane Ramayanas. But mm-hmm. enough about that topic from me, more from you. So how did you end up studying Jane Ramayana's? Yeah, I mean, this sort of happened by accident. Um, I, I did not enter into my PhD program thinking I was gonna do a, a, a Ramayana project. Um, I knew I wanted to work on Jane's. I had um, been introduced to Jainism as an undergrad at the University of Virginia. Uh, Karen Lang taught a course, a seminar on Jainism and I was, already a religion major, had already started Sanskrit and and taken a few classes in South Asian studies. um, And that course sort of hooked me. Um, And so by the time I I started working on my PhD, um, I knew I wanted to work on Jainism. And I happened across in Widener Library at Harvard, uh, a book uh, in Hindi on this guy named Brahmacharan Jinnadas. And sort of realized he was a super prolific author that no one uh, had really worked on in the Euro-American Academy. Uh, and it sort of 
the project extended from there. Um, and so I sort of discovered that he had written two Ramayanas. Um, he wrote one in Sanskrit called the Padma Purana, and then also one in a sort of North Indian vernacular Pasha language, essentially. Um, and I was interested in that sort of diglossic text composition, right? Why do people write in, in both Sanskrit and vernacular? And then as I was researching, I realized that the Sanskrit Padma Purana that Jinnadas wrote was clearly a rewrite of an earlier Jain Ramayana um, from like 800 years earlier uh, by this guy named Ravi Shena. Um, and Jinnadasa is explicit in saying that he wants to make Ravi Shena's text clear. Uh, and so the, the projects sort of emerge out of thinking about the question, well, what does he mean by clarity? Why does he rewrite? Why doesn't he write something like a commentary? What does textual recomposition do for religious communities? Uh, and then again, why re rewrite something in vernacular after you've written a thing in Sanskrit? So those were the sort of basic questions that led to me looking at the, the two sort of primary subjects of, of the book. Yeah, there are a number of really interesting themes in the work that you do. I mean, obviously, I'm, um, I'm quite fond of uh, studying the Ramayana. That's how I ended up finishing a master's. Yep. Um, otherwise, I would have dropped out into something else. <laughs> but perhaps the pressures of destiny were upon me. Who knows? Um, but um, but aside from the the, the 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 rich, profound story of Rama, mm -hmm. uh, like I mean, I mean, we see this tension in in in, in Puranic study all the time. Mm -hmm. You know. Um, text versus retelling versus interpolation versus yeah. you know thinking of the text as a tradition mm -hmm. thinking yeah. of all of the iterations mm -hmm. as part of a web of of ramayana traditions and then on top of that you've got well what makes these tellings jaina you know what, like what how do they rework them for yeah. that milieu and on top of that you've got an individual who sees himself as commentating on someone from eight centuries before Yep. And so there's there are all these different layers of storytelling, these frames uh, yeah. of access. Mm -hmm. And so um, maybe a good place to start just for the audience is to help us understand, you know, why do the Jains tell the story of Rama or how might they tell them differently overarchingly from what we might um, typically consider key elements of the story of Rama? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So first of all, um, obviously, the fact of or, or the idea of Ram being an incarnation of Vishnu, which is prevalent in most we call Brahminical or Hindu versions of the Ramayana is absent. Um, Jains rewrite uh, the Ramayana to place um, Ram, his brother um, and his brother Lakshman and Ravana within this larger sort of schema of what they call the Shalaka Purushas, the 63 illustrious men of Jain universal history. Um, and then there's a lot of um, sort of content changes that Jains make as well. So Ravana becomes a much more likable character in a lot of Jain Ramayanas, certainly in comparison to Valmiki. Um, he's a good Jain king. Uh, he has a particular sort of devotional affinity for Shantinata, one of the Jinnas of the most recent current, uh, current world age. Um, and he sort of suffers from this one sort of issue, this character flaw of sort of egoism and pride. Um, and that sort of expresses itself in uh, when he sees Sita for the first time, that sort of rears up and he decides that he has to have her and that's why he abducts her. Um, Kaiki is uh, uh, another sort of character who, who becomes softened, I would say, in Jane Ramayana's. She, uh, 
isn't worried about losing her place uh, at court, uh, she concocts this plan to, to exile Ram and Sita and Lakshmana because she's worried that her biological son Bharata is going to follow Dasharatha, the king, into mendicancy, into Jain, and to become a Jain renunciate. And so it's this very maternal worry that she has. Um, yeah, and then there's a sort of larger sort of process by which, um, and this has been documented before me, Jains try to sort of remove a lot of what they call the fantastical elements of the story. Uh, not all the fantastical elements, but uh, the fact that Kumbhakarna sleeps for six months out of the year or something like that, they sort of question, right? Or how could a group of monkeys defeat um, Ravana, these sorts of things. So the Vanaras, what are monkeys in Valmiki, are just um, a group of individuals, a clan of people who have the monkey as their banner, uh, and they're not actual monkeys. And so there's a lot of sort of those uh, renegotiations, I would say, or, or rewritings of the story. Tell us a little bit, perhaps, about uh, the role of violence and maybe the karmic um, the consequences of violence. And then, you know, Rama's mm -hmm. prime dharma is Kshatriya and, you know, a wielder of justified force in the Hindu world. And how does that get reworked, if at all? Yeah, so that's part of this idea of the illustrious men. So Rama in the sort of Jain illustrious men schema is called a Baladeva. He is a sort of perfect Jain hero who actually does not commit violence. So in, I would say, most Jain Ramayanas, it's actually Lakshmana who kills Ravana and not Ram. Uh, and so Lakshmana's sort of character is called a Vasudeva, um, who is the sort of sidekick of the Baladeva and does a lot of the Baladeva's sort of violent, dirty work. Uh, and so that's why uh, Lakshmana ends up killing uh, Ravana, you know, towards the end, not at the actual end, but towards the end. Um, and then Ravana is cast as uh, in the schema as the Prati Vasudeva. Uh, and there are long accounts of how the Vasudeva and the Prati Vasudeva have gone through, you know, subsequent lifetimes upon lifetimes upon lifetimes of, of uh, warring with each other or animosity towards each other. And that all culminates in when Lakshmana ends up killing um, Ravana. And so because of that, both Lakshmana and Ravana uh, because they perform these acts of violence, because they are not these sort of perfect uh, embodiments of nonviolence, of ahimsa, the central tenet in Jainism, they immediately go to hell uh, in the lives that they, you know, once they die in the story. Um, and there's a lot of uh, descriptions in Jain Ramayana's about their condition there. Um, and in fact, the character who was Sita in a, in a future birth tries to go to hell. She's reborn as a god. She goes to hell and tries to rescue um, Lakshmana from hell. And the texts are very clear. Obviously, she can't do that. Lakshmana has to work off the, the, the bad karma that his soul has accrued. Um, and so there's this uh, really nice sort of metaphor that Lakshmana's hand slips through hers like melting butter in a fire. And so she can't rescue him. Um, but Ram is seen as this sort of paragon of nonviolence, as a Baladeva, and then Lakshmana and Ravana suffer the consequences, the karmic repercussions of the violence they perform throughout the story. And that's reproduced in other sort of sets of the Baladeva, Vasudeva, and Pratyavasudeva um, in this sort of Salaka Purusha schema. Such a beautiful um, literary image of the melting butter, particularly yeah. insofar as Sita is so pure that she's mm -hmm. untouched by fire, where, you know, yeah. ghee or, or, or 
karma or lakshmi that can be burnt but yeah. you know her hand doesn't get burnt yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. beautiful metaphor yep. um and you know uh, because i'm slightly preoccupied with ethics of violence i this mm. this kind of innovation uh this jain innovation of well um rama doesn't really fulfill the kshatriya dharma and, and to the extent that he does mm-hmm. he's punished for it <laughs> so, <laughs> this is real this is a a, yep. a, a key uh difference mm-hmm. um How's your book? How's your book structured? So the book is structured around sort of two ideas or claims or sort of, of basic questions. Um, first is I, I want to highlight the differences between Jain versions of the Ramayana. Um, oftentimes, Jain Ramayanas are sort of talked about monolithically, um, and this is one way in which I think you know Jain studies and Jain literary studies is a bit behind. Hindu studies or Buddhist studies and these sorts of things, we haven't really embraced the internal diversity of our own texts, right, or of Jain texts. And so it's very clear, um, and this emerged from reading Jinnadasa's Padma Purana, he has this sort of stated goal. He wants to create clarity out of Rabbi Shainas. He's doing a new textual project, and he's making specific changes in order to achieve that. Um, and then he goes and rewrites the same story in in Basha in the vernacular. And so I'm I'm prioritizing or sort of foregrounding difference uh, as as the as what I'm looking for, what I'm reading for uh, among and between these these versions that purport, of course, to tell the same story. And then second, I'm interested in thinking about what those differences mean in terms of how texts create moral persons, um, how they shape. Um, the literary strategies they use to make people better, to make people more ethical. And what emerges from a reading for difference and thinking about ethical subjectivity is that it's not just that each of the different texts I analyze um, trains people to be moral differently. It's that they actually have different ideas of what it means to be a moral person. What does a good person actually look like? And so that's what I try to get across throughout the book. and so I can go sort of into more detail if you want. No, that's that that's great, and we will go more into detail. This 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 big idea is very important to the extent to which, um, the, perhaps arguably the, the 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 purpose, the prime objective of narrative is to communicate, mm-hmm. and to communicate a theme of a narrative isn't two plus two equals four. The theme of a narrative of the narrative of narrative in general is in the moral of the story. We have this expression mm-hmm. in English and. Yeah. And whether it's it's you know you have the very clear like in Aesop's fables or or not like in the Ramayana tradition, mm-hmm. um, it, this seems uh, very apropos to studying narrative, which is just yeah. juicing it for the ethical essence that's internalized, assumed that the text is trying to uh, um, 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 pass on to generations. So, um, so. Why does Gina, uh, Gina Dasa feel the need to rewrite uh, Ravi Shena's uh, iteration? He thinks it's too poetic. It's too complicated. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, there's there's too much um, there's too much that sort of detracts or, or distracts from the progress of the story. That's what Gina Dasa says. So the book starts actually with an analysis of, of Ravi Shena's Padma Purana, which is this beautiful piece of kavya, uh, you know, Sanskrit bells letras. It's this absolutely wonderful, poetically sort of um, uh, difficult in places um, piece of Sanskrit. Um, and so what the first chapter does is analyze Ravi Shena as a work of kavya, 
um, and Kavya that is trying to inculcate in the reader the sort of primary rasa, the angi rasa of Shanta, of the quiescent sentiments, um, which is very common in Jain Kavya. Uh, and then to, to think about the ways in which the creation of, of, of Shanta uh, in the reader sort of pushes them or, or, or tries to get them to renounce the world, to become a Jain renunciant. So the paragon of ethical personhood for Ravi Shena is this sort of emotionally attuned person who realizes that escaping the world, leaving the world behind is the sort of ultimate ethical action, right? And a lot of that work is done through emotional manipulation of the reader that Ravi Shena is very, very good at. Um, he particularly sort of manipulates the reader's experience of grief. Uh, and so I can go into more, more into that. Um, and then what Jinnadasa does is he takes out, just sort of ruthlessly excises all of the emotionally sort of um, work uh, that Ravi Shena does through his poetics. Uh, and he makes the story about understanding these very basic character traits that he attaches and sort of hammers home for each character. So Ravana becomes an exemplar of pride and egoism. Uh, and it's very clear and consistent throughout the narrative that that is who Jinnadasa thinks Ravana is. Uh, Rama is the opposite. He's this sort of um, peaceful, quiescent warrior, right, who controls his emotions, right? Uh, and then the reader tracks as they read Jinnadasa's Sanskrit Padma Purana exactly what befalls each character because of these singular character traits. Uh, and so the moral work of, of Jinnadasa's uh, Sanskrit text is really in intellectually understanding the need to sort of dampen or control or discipline the kashayas, these passions that arise in Jainism and the threat that can occur or the, the danger of, of not doing that. So Ravana going to hell is clearly a repercussion of him not working to tamp down or discipline his ego. Um, and so the reader sort of learns that. Um, but all of this sort of poetics just gets in the way for Jinnadasa. It, it, it distracts from the sort of timely progress of the narrative. And so he just gets rid of it. So before we talk a bit more about the getting rid of it, tell us, uh, tell us a bit more about uh, that tantalizing thought of um, um, the prowess of emotional manipulation on behalf of, of an author. Yeah, so Ravi Shaina is really good um, at... I, I don't mean manipulation negatively, I just mean it factually, right? Um, and so the way that he does it in the Padma Purana is first and foremost, he gets us to really like Ravana. Um, Ravana, the reader encounters Ravana as the first main character of the story. Like I said, he's a really good Jane King. Um, he's just, he's fair. He's, he's on this just mission to reclaim his homeland of Lanka, which had been taken from him by a rival clan. Um, and he goes about doing that in a, in a just and good way. Um, and so the reader spends a lot of time with Ravana, um, learning to like him, learning to think of him as a friend, while, of course, also knowing in the back of their minds what is going to happen to him, um, that he is going to die, right? Um, and so when he eventually dies at the hands of Lakshmana, the reader is meant to feel really sad. They're supposed to experience grief at the at the fact of losing this friend, right? Um, Ravi Shena sort of plays on that or plays that up even more. Um, 
he builds up Ravana as this amazing sort of just righteous, strong king right up until he um, abducts Sita. And then there's this sort of drop in his character and he becomes this sort of pitiful, whiny uh, individual when Sita doesn't uh, uh, respond to him the way he wants, right? And so there's this precipitous drop that the reader is supposed to feel bad about and then it just leads to him dying. And then nothing happens. Um, and so Ram gives this sort of cursory explanation of it was Ravana's fate to die, to be killed. It's all just workings of karma. This explanation of karma doesn't alleviate any of the grief that Ravana or that the reader actually feels, right? And so they're sort of left with this unresolved grief. And what finally resolves that is at the end of the story when Lakshmana dies uh, through a trick of two gods. Uh, and the reader experiences or sort of equates the grief that Ram feels with their own grief. Uh, Ram goes through six months of sort of refusing to believe that his uh, brother has died. He carries around his corpse with him for six months and won't let anyone perform the funerary rites that are necessary. Uh, until finally, Ram understands uh, that the only way to alleviate this grief is through renunciation and becoming a good Degumbra Jain monk. Um, and that sort of points the reader towards the fact that if they want to alleviate their own grief, they should do the same thing. Um, and so, again, it's this emotional attunement to the universality of grief uh, that the reader experiences and then being led to not the amelioration, not only of one's individual grief, but of the universality of grief through renunciation. And so that's how Ravi Shaina sort of points you towards that. And it's it's just amazingly skillful. It is it is this just beautiful work of Sanskrit that that culminates, I think, perfectly. Lovely. And uh, yet eight centuries later, we have uh, Genesena ripping it apart. You know, you know, yeah. you know, this is a lovely little lion. I think we need to shave the mane off and, <laughs> you know, you know, clip a bit of the yep. whiskers and, uh, yeah. you know, have him slouch a bit. And you no, know, so, yeah. so, so, so uh, Jinadasa um, 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 revolutionizes this in his retelling. And I guess what I want to ask is how much do we know about his context? And the reason I'm asking that is um, to what extent do you think what he's doing is a response to his times or uh, just uh, owing to his own personal theological needs or his pers personality quirks? Like what's driving um, his project? Yeah, there's this really interesting sort of passage in Ravi Shaina um, in the first chapter that describes um, different types of listeners or hearers of the story of Ram, right? And, and how they will respond to it. Um, and it's pretty brief. I think it's only like four verses. Um, and in Jinnadasa's retelling, it is the only place in the narrative where he actually expands upon what Ravi Shena writes. So he adds like 10 more possibilities of listeners, right? Um, and sort of explains again how they will respond to it. And so in the book I talk about like, Jinnadasa clearly thinks his world is more complicated in a way. There are more possibilities of, of who people are and how they will respond to this narrative. Um, and in that world that is more complicated, he wants precision. And he wants, as he, as he says, he explicitly says he wants clarity. Um, what I try to do in the book is be careful about saying that um, 
a complicated world doesn't mean a worse world in particular, right? It doesn't mean that things are are, are worse off than they were in Ravi Shana's. He just sees he sees a more complicated world that the story needs to be updated to work in, right? And he doesn't see this highly poetic, emotionally manipulative work that that Ravi Shana has written as capable of working in the proper way that the Ram story should. Um, and so that's why he goes about intentionally streamlining the narrative and creating clarity out of what he sees as being unclear. I find that fascinating for a variety of reasons that I probably won't go into on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) What do you hope, um, what do you hope folks most take away from this work? Mm, Yeah. So I I wrote the book intentionally thinking of sort of different audiences. Um, Obviously, it participates in in discussions within Jane studies, and I try to model a sort of reading strategy in a way of generating questions that gets gets the field out of just sort of reading a a, a text to sort of find the ahimsa, right? Like I found the nonviolence, and so now I know why this thing is is Jane, right? Um, I try to get us out of that a bit to think of. Jain authors as full participants in the world of pre-modern Sanskrit and Basha narrative composition, right? Um, and so I, I hope to do that for, for people sort of in the field of Jain studies. Um, I think it's important for people who are interested in Sanskrit and, um, and vernacular literature to, to read, to understand what Jains were doing. They're still understudied, I think, in, in the history of Sanskrit literature. Um, and and a lot of them were really good authors. Uh, Ravi Shena, I don't think, was writing just for Jains. Uh, I think taking the work seriously as a kavya necessitates thinking beyond just a Jain audience, right? Any sort of emotionally refined, attuned person should understand and be affected by um, the work of Ravi Shena, right? Sorry, just really briefly before I forget, an analog that comes to mind is that Italian operas aren't just for people who speak Italian. Right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, yeah, and then I think I, I want people to understand that Jainism historically and literarily is and always has been just as diverse and interesting as any other South Asian religious tradition. There's a, there's a, a trend, I think, in Jainism um, to want it to be, or to think of it at least, as a bit monolithic, right? It, it has always been the same, but the tenets, the foundations have always been the same and have been expressed in the same way. Um, and I want people to understand that that's not the case. It's the, the temptation is to, um, uh, um, perhaps a la uh, many um, world religion textbooks, or, you know, just uh, the temptation is to um, think of Jain uh, as a side dish, Jainism as a side dish of Hinduism or, 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 or a distillation mm-hmm. of something therein, or take Hindu principles, ascetic ideology, take them to their extreme, um, um, tack on some interesting practices and names, and there you've got Jainism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so there, you know, there for different sort of political and historical reasons, Jinnadasa lived in the 15th century, um, which has been largely overlooked uh, in the study of Jainism until very recently. It was seen as this sort of degraded time period and where uh, Jain monastics sort of weren't really fulfilling their vows. And so therefore it wasn't really worthy of study. Um, and so bringing 
you know, Jindadasa wrote between 60 and 80 works in like a 20 year time frame. He was an incredibly prolific author in multiple languages, right? Um, so in trends in South Asian studies, uh, Indian religious studies, right? You know, Jains have a place there uh, and I'm, I'm trying to, to, to contribute to that as well. Comes to mind, actually, uh, I can't remember. I mean, I'm in the timeless time of our 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 our, our COVID hangover in, in mm-hmm. the podcast land, and so I don't know if it was last year or when it was. Don't ask me. Mm-hmm. Um, but at some point in the not too recent past, uh, this podcast was renamed by yours truly, New Books mm-hmm. in Indian Religions, and you probably yep. were listening to it when it was New Books in Hindu Studies, mm-hmm. and. Oh, we all know that Hinduism is a problematic work for a variety of reasons, mm-hmm. uh, but more practically speaking than to split an intellectual hair, yeah. there's so much that falls into what we could think of as Buddhism, Sikhism, Jainism, mm-hmm. that uh, that so enriches how we think of Hinduism and vice versa. And this monograph is, you know, a prime example of, of why this seems to be new books in Indian religions, because certainly this has much to say about Ramayana traditions and compositional mm-hmm. practices in South Asia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so you mentioned this in the, you mentioned this in passing when I asked you about the key takeaways, mm. but let's just make it a little more um, I'm, I'm, I'm clear. Who would most benefit from reading this book? What kinds of folks? Um everyone <laughs> um yes everyone uh, immediately <laughs> um you know i think people who are interested in um the ethical work of narrative literature right and i mean that not only within religious studies i mean that certainly not even you know within jain studies but anyone who's interested in thinking about how narrative creates ethical subjects right I, um or or how narrative trains people to read itself um, to become better people. That's absolutely one of the sort of key themes and sort of contributions of the book. Um, and also, I think what I've tried to do is be explicit, particularly in introduction, about how I came to the questions I ask of my materials um, and how they are not the only questions that you could ask of these materials um, and how they are very specific given my reading of the field of Jain studies, the field of South Asian narrative. And so I, tr- I, I try to be really clear and upfront and honest um, about why I'm asking the questions I'm asking. And so people who are, I, I think you know, particularly graduate students, people who are trying to think of, of coming up with projects, um, I, I, I intentionally wrote the book to be honest about why I'm asking the questions I'm asking and, and how I came to those questions. Um, and so people who are thinking about how do I develop a project? How do I ask interesting questions? How do I make contributions to fields, right? Not sort of searching for capital T truth, but I'm making contributions to fields that I'm participating in and that I value. And that doesn't have to be Jainism. Uh, it can be anything. It's evident to me, or at least I'll say it's my perception. How's that? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, um, I, it, it's, um, to me, when I read the book, it's clear that the person writing the book is, um, can and or enjoys teaching. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. the book, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, this is our first conversation, mm-hmm. but it, it, you can tell with the cues, like when someone is speaking to an audience as if you want to make sure they stay along with you. Yeah. You know, I think in your last... Um, 
in your concluding chapter, you know, you, you basically have a subheading of like one of the core questions I asked in this podcast geared at public education. So what's the takeaway? What are the key takeaways in case you weren't paying attention in case you fell asleep halfway? Yeah. Here are the takeaways. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's really important. I mean, you know, I, it's not a particularly long book, but I think it is a complicated book insofar as some of the texts have the same name, right? I, you know, I'm talking about the same characters throughout the entire thing. Um, there's a lot that I think readers could get sort of bogged down in. And so I, I, I did really intentionally want to take a step back and say, you know, these are the, the key things that you need to take away from this book. Um, I think being open about that is a positive. I think it's good. Um, I don't think your reader should have to search for what your contribution is. Uh, and so I tried to be really clear and explicit about that. And also the ways in which I think either I or people in the future could could move forward with the sort of questions I'm asking. There's an entire sort of uh, table at the, in the conclusion of the book that just lists other Jane Reminas that people have not worked on, right? So I also try to point people in, in future directions uh, and to say, I don't think I wrote the book on Ravi Shana. I don't think I wrote the book on Jinadasa. I think I asked two or three particular questions of these texts I think I provide an answer to them and other people can ask different questions or future questions or similar questions of different materials um, and, and add to the contribution that I think I'm making. And that's what scholarship is to me. The best book, I've said it before, I'll say it again. The best books are beginnings, right? Scholarly books, I mean, the best yep. scholarly books, they're beginnings. They mm-hmm. just yep. unturn a stone and they're far from perfect. My work on the Devi Mahami is far from perfect, mm-hmm. but one imagines it's not without insight. Yep, right? absolutely. One hopes yep. it's not without insight. Yeah. Um, and uh, perhaps the methods that I sort of iron out can be used elsewhere or improved upon, and hopefully they will be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And so it's evident that your project's a textual one, uh, the giveaways that we've only been talking about texts, but um, I think we should touch a little more on the methodology, particularly with respect to your engagement of narrative. Could you say a bit about if any um, theorist or idea informs consciously or unconsciously your approach to narrative? Mm. Um. So I think Buddhist studies has done some really interesting work on the sort of moral power of narratives. I'm thinking of Charles Halsey and Anne Hansen's article, um, and they rely on rapport a lot for their article on that. Um, I quote that. Um, and, and so their sort of ideas that what narrative allows is for you to sort of leave your own identity behind and enter earnestly into the narrative and that the possibilities once you've done that are sort of endless right and that's where the moral work of narrative occurs um and that i agree with um as 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 far as a sort of theoretical approach to reading these texts in particular i i cite and work with jay-z smith who is very clear about um difference being what is important about a comparative project um and and also um um oh i'm forgetting his name right now which is really bad uh nothing is good or bad i uh, I had a teacher who once used to say nothing is good or bad thinking (laughs) makes it so so (laughs) i just looked over my bookshelf um so uh dominic lacapra uh who talks about um reading text uh, uh not being sort of defined by um, the sort of circumstances of their creation or of their being written, right? So there's a there's a trend, um, and I think Jane Studies has sort of adopted this trend of, of, of thinking 
circumstantially as, as defining what texts mean. And I sort of try to bracket off circumstances to a degree and, and really try to figure out what the text is telling me um, and, and think of cues that authors are leaving as to how the text should be read. You're, you're completely speaking my language. Mm -hmm. So, so much of just reading texts and reading people and reading life have just been internalized through observation over the years, but a simple and but powerful idea of the, 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 of the semiotician Umberto Eco is that. Mm -hmm. Yep the text it's it's crafted to tell you how it wants to be read yep and of course we're not like of course nothing comes arrives in a vacuum of course knowledge for the world beyond the text is only going to help you yeah but it's not but but that text does have agency for you know anyone with a human psyche yeah on some absolutely level. yeah yep absolutely and, and it's a fine line between thinking and allowing context to, to influence and allowing context to predetermine. And so what I'm really trying to make sure I'm not doing is allowing context to predetermine. Um, and so another way, and I, I talk about this a bit in the introduction to the book of thinking about this is uh, the, the vocabulary of framing, which I take from John Court, um, one of the big players in Jane studies, um, allowing questions to frame your approach to text with the understanding, just like an art, that a different frame will change the way you perceive the piece of art, right? Asking different questions of a text will bring certain aspects to the fore, will allow other aspects of the text to, to sort of fade into the background, and that's okay. Um, as long as you're upfront and clear and honest about how you're framing your approach to your reading. Again, that really resonates. Yeah, and all of that is inspired and, and I sort of imbibed from uh, Anne Monius, who was my PhD advisor um, and was, yeah, the greatest advisor on the planet. So, <laughs> um, I actually ended up going to Calgary to do a, a, a PhD in Canada, uh, sort of uh, mm. in and out as best I could. I, by some minor miracle, I finished it in four years. But mm. I went to work with um, 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 Elizabeth Rollman, who was a student of Anmonius. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and first PhD uh, student. Yeah. <laughs> and I was uh, Beth's first PhD student. So there you go. The the, the power yeah. of Prampara at the yeah. academy. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Um, yeah, so without question, um, her influence on uh, Beth Rollman has definitely infiltrated my own studies. Yep. In yep. It was actually uh, Beth who um, uh, tunes me to Umberto Echo. She she uses Echo for a, um, 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 a graduate reading course. Okay, yeah. And it just, it stayed with me. And then it wasn't until I was turning out my dissertation when I thought I need to think of, you know, like, and it was a little bit backwards in that, like, I know how I read these texts, but I don't know what theory to point to, to, mm -hmm. to explain how I read yeah, these sure. texts. Yep. And there it was. One um, of the big things in, in moving from dissertation to book was how I talked about theory, actually. And so when I, when I rewrote the introduction to talk about the book, I, I tried to be more explicit about, this is the way that theory has influenced how I think. And I'm not applying theory to text. I'm applying theory to myself. Um, and, and that is going to influence in X, Y, and Z ways the way that I read these texts. Um, so how we that's talk and think vital, about theory. Yeah. That's a vital, vital distinction. Yeah. That, I mean, in my view, that's why. It's like, I, I, I'm currently teaching a, a reading course um, I'm, I'm, I'm on the Devi Mahatmya at a, hmm. a fantastic platform called Yogic Studies, actually set up by, mm -hmm. by Seth Powell at uh, Harvard. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and you know, I'm saying to them, listen, guys, before you read me or Doniger or anyone else, read the Devi Mahatmya over yeah. and over again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then, you know, yeah. read the text yeah. first, you know, yep. exclusively. 
Yep. And then, you know, you, you, and, and this principle just pervades my life. I can't imagine watching review of a Game of Thrones episode before watching the episode. I mean, sure, I don't yeah. understand. Yeah. But, um, but I think that idea is very important. The primacy mm-hmm. of the text and the primacy of engaging the text and, and really getting familiar with it because mm-hmm. it will impact how you think of it. Yep. Yeah. Familiarity will inform the research. Yeah, when I was first starting the research for this, you know, Anne's recommendation was you just need to wallow in the text for a while. You need to just be with the text and sit with them and read them and and allow them to sort of wash over you in a way. And then you can start thinking about questions and then you can start thinking about answers to those questions. But you need access and time with the text themselves. Fascinating. Um, it's... it. it it's unsurprising. I mean, the story of Rama is so gripping. I literally was pulled into grad school because mm. I could not, I love the, I love narrative. Um, mm-hmm. I started off as an English major. Then I dropped out long story, returned to study uh, um, Hinduism essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just, I knew that Rama's coronation day and his exile on that day, I knew that there was something really important happening there and I couldn't mm-hmm. begin to make sense of it. Mm. why on earth are they celebrating yes he's being a great sage but he's being a terrible king terrible son even his father wants him to be wants to be locked up basically (laughs) what's going on here and so it's unsurprising that um the the story is so fascinating that it's it's gripped by many a jain thinker as well and Mm -hmm. and the way i view the the valmiki ramayana the ramayana traditions in general is this Mm -hmm. sort of interplay between royal and ascetic ideologies right Mm. and it's it's interesting that in the jain context it's like no for rama to be the hero Mm-hmm. he has to be he has to swing much more towards the nivriti the the sort of the, the ascetic ideology and he has to really yeah. issue the, the chathya dharma and i find that endlessly fascinating because one would one would imagine that that is a crucial aspect of rama's heroism mm-hmm. yeah and yet the jains completely rework that mm-hmm. yeah and it's also i mean one of the great things about jain ramayanas is that there is so much innovation within what is essentially you know predetermined outcome, right? The Baladeva is always going to end up renouncing the world, right? It, and he's going to become a monk and he's going to achieve liberation at the end of his life, right? That's going to happen. Um, Lakshmana, you know, the Vasudeva and the Pratibhasudeva, the, the same thing is going to happen to them in every time, right? In every retelling of the story. And so within what could be seen as sort of strictures, right? As limiting factors, um, chain authors have been really good about finding ways to tell aspects of it anew or to prioritize different either emotional or theological aspects, right? Um, and in that process to, to, to talk about ethics, to talk about morality, to talk about what it means to be a good person in new and interesting ways. And so creativity out of what can be seen limitations, I just find really fascinating and it's something that James do really well. That's a wonderful note to end on, I feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before we do we'll formally end, was there anything else about the book that you hoped we'd touch on? I was maybe a little more um, <laughs> vocal than in some podcasts because uh, I seem to like this topic. But uh, was there anything else you wanted us to touch on? Um, I mean, I guess I'll just say, you know, the second half of the book is about the vernacular. It's called the Ram Ross. It's Jinnadasa's vernacular work. Um, and there I really rely on, or, or I guess lean into the idea that this Ross perf- uh, text was supposed to be performed um, and then sort of think about what is, what does a Ram text from a Jain mean when it's performed? Who is the audience of such a text? Um, and, and, and what does that mean for uh, sort of ethical development or, or the development of moral persons? Um, and so 
a lot of what I do there, I actually, I, I make the argument that in performance, or if we think about the sort of historical situatedness of a performance, who's going to come to a performance of a Ramayana? Everyone. Everyone's going to come. Um, and so it's one of, I, I sort of make the argument that, again, we need to think beyond just Jains as audience members or readers or listeners to this text. Uh, we should be confident in the fact that even Jain authors could talk about ethics in ways that were effective on non-Jains. Um, and we need to think about the ways in which pre-modern South Asians could, could think about their own identity in more ways than just religious identity. So Jains were Jains, but they were other things. And, and those identities could sometimes compete, sometimes be complementary. Um, and if we only privilege religious identity, we miss out on a lot of interactions and a lot of possibilities for moral work of text. And so that's what I do in the sort of second half, or I guess part three of the book. Um, yeah. Fascinating. So having been, uh, in your words, a long time listener, um, was it what you expected? <laughs> what was it like being on the podcast? Great. I always like talking about this. You know, I'm excited. You know, I'm sure as, as everyone who's written a book, I'm sure you know this, I am simultaneously excited for this to be out and so sick of it and done with it and just want it to be out in the world, right? Like I'm excited, but this was my dissertation. I've been working on this for 10 years. I am done and ready to move on to something else to a degree as well. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so um, then let's end with this question, which uh, mm. I, I typically would end with uh, for a phase of the podcast. What is the next step? What are you working on next? So I'm currently working on a translation of a text. Part of my interest in Jane literature has become I want more people to be able to read it. Um, and that it necessarily involves translation. Um, and so I'm working on translation of a text called the Varanga Charita, the Deeds of Prince Varanga, which is a seventh century Sanskrit text um, written by a Jain monk named Jatasim Hanandi. There's this really interesting story. Um, and so that is ongoing, it's the beginning stages. Um, I've proposed that to the Murti Classical Library of India series um, and they want to see more translation. So hopefully that will work out. Um, I'm finishing up some sort of smaller projects at the moment, but the next big monograph project is going to be about King Shrenika as a literary character. Uh, and so King Shrenika is sort of omnipresent in in Jain narrative literature, he is the sort of perfect listener. He receives all of these stories from, um, usually from Gautama, Mahavir's uh, sort of primary disciple. Uh, and so he goes and approaches Mahavir, asks, for instance, that the true story of Ram be told, right? Um, and he's sort of everywhere. And I want to look at the ways in which Jain lay identity we can think about that as changing through the lens of King Shrenika. So in, in the early modern period, new texts begin to be written that center Shrenika as the protagonist of his own narrative. Um, and so I wanna see the ways in which depictions and sort of engagements with Shrenika as a literary character change historically and what we can say about Jane identity because of that. Yeah, fascinating enterprise. Um, what comes to mind is, uh, um, uh, you know, Brian Collins looking at um, um, Parushurama or um, mm -hmm. uh, Adi Shate looking at um, Vishwamitra, right? Yep. I have in the back of my brain a book <laughs> at some point called Mapping Markandeya, where we just, oh, okay, you know, yeah. we just we just nerd out on Markandeya. Yep. Like, yeah, what exactly. does Markandeya say? Who is he putting yeah. together over? Because, you know, he's he's an ancient 
saying yeah. that appears in a number of yeah. places. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that should be a cool project. And um, what inspired that project actually is this weird, it's to me a conundrum where um, Srinika has access to the Jinnah, right? Like he hears from the Jinnah, he hears all the stuff, he, he, he should, he, it, it should work on him, right? And yet he ends his life by suicide. Um, and so how can this person who has access to the, the, to, the, to the dharma of an enlightened being, right? Seemingly at the end of his life, not have imbibed anything. Right, so that's sort of the crux of what has interested me in, in Srinika as a literary character. Um, we should speak about that at some point. That's fascinating. <laughs> um, so thanks again for appearing on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Great. Um, for those of you listening, we have been speaking with Dr. Gregory M. Kleins uh, of Trinity University. We've been speaking about this brand new 2022 Rutledge publication, uh, Jane Ramina Narratives, Moral Vision and Literary Innovation. Um, until next time, um, keep listening. Uh, stay safe. Oh, stay can safe. I add one thing? Sorry, can I oh, add one more thing? Sure. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll just add the book is available, open access for free to download, um, thanks to the generous... Uh, support of my institution so you can access it um, right now and you can download it for free so and that link will be in the podcast notes that is a very important point um and i'm glad that was raised because i was not aware of that so it's yeah. it'll be in the podcast notes you can click right now and get the book in your hot little hands um right so uh for those listening um stay safe stay sane and keep contemplating uh, the intersection of morality and narrative. Take care.